in addressing him, still continued to call him father, and so deeply did he cherish a vindictive spirit for this honest admonition, that after his restoration he expressed his resentment of it to some, and resolved to make his reprover the first victim of his mortal vengeance. Footnote. Wadro Van Electa, Volume 1, page 67. Wadro introduces this and another anecdote given thus. November 11, 1705, my brother tells me that he has the accounts of the Marquis of Argyle from Mr. Hasty, who had them from Mr. Neil Gillies, who was in the family of Argyle, and had them both from the Marchioness. See also Analecta, Volume 2, page 145. End footnote. Upon what grounds the Marchioness came to such a conclusion respecting the character of Charles, we do not know but from the accuracy of the judgment she pronounced upon it, she must have discovered facts concerning him, which, painful as it might be to her to entertain such suspicions and feelings concerning him, confirmed all that she had said. After this, she was visited with a severe illness which threatened her life, as appears from the following quotation. When the king resolved to march into England in June 1651, the resolution was opposed by Argyle with reasons of knowing considerable strength. But notwithstanding this disapprobation of the measure, he would have gone along with the king had not his lady been lying at the point of death. This induced him to seek permission to remain behind, which was graciously accorded, and he took leave of the king at Stirling. Footnote Douglas's Peerage, Volume 1, page 98. End footnote. From this illness, however, the Marchioness recovered. No additional particulars of importance occur in her history till the restoration of Charles II. That event, which was hailed with unbounded joy by almost all Scotland, she could hardly contemplate with any other feelings than those of alarm. While others were giving way to the most extravagant rejoicings, she must have felt from what she knew of Charles that she at least had rather cause to mourn than to rejoice. Aware that her husband was the object of his mortal hatred, for the reasons stated before, as well as on other accounts, she appears to have entertained some degree of anxiety about his safety, to have felt some forebodings that the restoration might be what it actually turned out to be the cause of the most poignant affliction of her life. When many noblemen and gentlemen from Scotland went up to London in 1660 to congratulate His Majesty upon his happy and safe return to his hereditary throne, the Marquis sent up his eldest son, Lord Lorne, but did not proceed to London himself till he got information of the favorable reception of his son when he was encouraged to repair to the capital. From this it is evident that the family had the impression that the Marquis had incurred the displeasure of the monarch and entertained some apprehension that he was in danger. Nor were these apprehensions unfounded. Footnote. As a curious instance of the superstitious regard paid to omens at that time, we may quote the following passage from Bailey's letters. Speaking of Argyle, he says, My good son, Mr. Robert Watson, was with his lady in Roseneath the night the king landed in England. He told me all the dogs that day did take a strange howling and staring up to my lady's chamber's windows for some hours together. Quoted in Kirkton's history in a note by the editor, page 107. End footnote. No sooner did Argyle arrive at Whitehall, which was on the 8th of July, 
Then, with an angry stamp of the foot, Charles gave orders for his imprisonment. He was instantly hurried to the tower, where he was kept close prisoner till toward the close of the year, when he was sent down from London by sea to Edinburgh to be committed prisoner to the castle and tried before the Scottish Parliament for high treason. His trial commenced on the 13th of February, 1661, when his indictment, consisting of 14 different articles, was read, in which he is charged with calling or causing to be called the Convention of Estates in 1643, and entering into the Solemn League and Covenant with England, with protesting in Parliament against the engagement of 1648, for relieving His Majesty Charles I, with raising an army to oppose the engagers, with corresponding with Cromwell and submitting to the Commonwealth, together with other crimes which were either a perversion or misrepresentation of facts or direct calumnies, as, for instance, that he had been accessory to or acquainted with the design of the murder of Charles I. These were the ostensible grounds of the proceedings against him, but it was private and personal reasons, not avowed, which impelled the actors in this tragedy. Charles II, as we have seen, hated him for the freedom of his admonitions as well as because he was opposed to the malignants and the main support of the Presbyterian interest of which he proved himself the uncompromising champion. And this hatred was deepened from the wrong which Charles was conscious of having done to him and his family in violating his promise of marrying Lady Anne, for unprincipled men uniformly hate those whom they have injured. This throws a flood of light upon the conduct of Charles toward him. It explains the angry stamp of the foot and warrants the assertion that he died a sacrifice to royal jealousy and revenge. Footnote, Kirkton's History, pages 69 and 70. End footnote. Middleton, too, who was His Majesty's Commissioner at the Parliament, being at once poor and avaricious, expected to obtain a grant of the estates of the martyr and hence his anxiety in order to get them forfeited and thus wrested from the lawful heirs that the Marquis should suffer as a regicide. It is also to be added that Middleton's associates in the Scottish government desired to divide the estates among themselves. Footnote Douglas's Peerage, Volume 1, page 99 Wadrow's History, Volume 1, page 131 End footnote Thus it was determined on all hands to make this nobleman a sacrifice. When the Marquis was lying a prisoner in the castle, the Marchioness entertained the worst apprehensions as to the intentions of his enemies. She was persuaded that they would be satisfied with nothing less than his life, and she, therefore, with a number of spirited gentlemen, entered into a plan for effecting his escape. In the execution of this plan, she herself was to act the principal part. On visiting him, she was to put on his clothes and, and remain in prison while he was to put on hers, and thus disguised make his escape, which could be the more easily effected as they were of the same stature. In order the more effectually to remove suspicion, he kept bed for some days as if he had been unwell, and one day when she came in a chair to visit him, they resolved to make the attempt. Being left alone, they proceeded to undress and exchange each other's clothes. This done, she was ready to remain in his place, whatever she might suffer from the resentment of the government. 
but her purpose was defeated by the Marquis himself, who, when about to be taken out in the chair on a sudden changing his mind, said he would not flee from the cause he so publicly owned, and throwing aside his disguise, put on his own clothes, resolving to suffer the uttermost. Footnote. Kirkton's History, page 103. Wadrow's History, volume 1, page 152. Burnett's History, volume 1, page 124. Burnett says that when the Marquis was going into the chair, he apprehended he should be discovered and his execution hastened, and so his heart failed him. End footnote. Thus she left the prison without having effected the object which lay so near her heart. What she dreaded was soon realized. On Saturday the 25th of May, he was sentenced to be beheaded at the Cross of Edinburgh for high treason. On Monday the 27th, and his head to be fixed on the west end of the toll-booth where the head of the Marquis of Montrose had formerly been exhibited as a spectacle. He was then sent to the toll-booth among the ordinary prisoners for the two short days allowed him to prepare for death. Footnote. Wadrow's History, Volume 1, page 150. Sir George Mackenzie's Memoirs of the Affairs of Scotland, page 40. End footnote. The distress of the Marchioness on hearing of this sentence is not to be described. On learning where he was to be confined during the brief period he had to live, she hurried to the prison in order to meet him. She was there before he reached it, and on his entrance a most affecting interview took place between them. They've given me till Monday, said he, on seeing her, to be with you, my dear. Therefore, let us make for it. The afflicted wife, in the agony of grief, burst into a flood of tears, and embracing him, exclaimed, The Lord will require it, the Lord will require it. On her uttering this appeal to the justice of heaven, which we conceive was nothing but the simple, unpremeditated, and instinctive outburst of nature, under a sense of such unmerited and grievous wrong, and which neither Christian principle nor Christian feeling condemned, a minister present, doubtless with the best intentions, gently reminded her that we should not be revengeful, to whom she replied, We need not be so. Alluding to the words of Paul, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Footnote. Wadrow's History, Volume 1, page 153. Wadrow Manuscripts, Volume 27, Folio Number 53. End footnote. Her distress in these painful circumstances was so deeply affecting that even the bailie who accompanied the Marquis to the prison, though no great friend to him, was softened into tears and none in the room could refrain from giving vent in a similar way to their feelings. Meanwhile the Marquis, though at first he wept himself, soon became perfectly composed and endeavored to comfort his beloved and sobbing wife. Forbear, forbear, said he affectionately to her. Truly I pity them. They know not what they are doing. They may shut me in where they may please, but they cannot shut out God from me. For my part, I am as content to be here as in the castle, and as content in the castle as in the Tower of London, and as content there as when at liberty, and I hope to be as content upon the scaffold as any of them all. He added that he remembered a scripture cited to him by an honest minister lately in the castle and endeavored to put it in practice. When Ziklag was taken and burnt, and the people spoke of stoning David, he encouraged himself in the Lord his God. 
Footnote, Wadrill's History, Volume 1, page 152. End footnote. After this interview, on the same day the Marchioness went down to the Abbey, to Middleton, His Majesty's Commissioner, to endeavor to obtain a reprieve. The object in asking this reprieve, no doubt, was to get time to apply to the King for a pardon. But when it is considered that the Parliament of which Middleton was the moving spring refused to accede to the request which the Marquis made when at the bar and about to receive his sentence, that the sentence should not be executed till ten days after it was pronounced, there was little ground to hope that his lady would succeed in obtaining for him what she sought. But where his life was involved, she determined to make an appeal to Middleton's pity if not to his sense of justice. She accordingly went down with a heavy heart to Holyrood House and was admitted to see him. He had been drinking hard but was in the full possession of his reason and received her with extreme courtesy and kindness, which was far from his usual manner of receiving supplicants, and it seemed as if there was no favor which he would be unwilling to grant at her request. Her courteous and respectful reception might perhaps awaken in her for a moment hopes that he would commiserate her case. But she had a man to deal with whose heart was never softened by compassion and who was not accustomed to show mercy. When she proceeded to tell him her errand, pathetic as was the appeal she made in behalf of her condemned husband, he told her that he could not serve her in that particular, that to do so would be as much as his life was worth and that though he should grant her what she so earnestly desired, it would be fruitless, for he had received three instructions from the king which he was imperatively required to carry into effect. First, to rescind the covenants, secondly, to behead the Marquis of Argyle, and thirdly, to sheath every man's sword in his brother's breast. The proverb is, Post Winum Veritas. Middleton had thus imprudently betrayed the intentions of his master to the Marchioness, and the following day, remembering, after having slept off his night's debauch, what he had said to her, he became so dejected that for several days he was not to be spoken with, and told some of his friends that he had discovered a part of his secret instructions to the Lady of Argyle, which would ruin him. But she took no advantage of him, having told this only to Mr. Gillies, who, as Wadrow thinks, was waiting on her at that time, and accordingly it went no further. Footnote. Wadrow's Analecta. Volume 1, pages 67 and 68. See Appendix number 2. End of footnote. From what Middleton said to her, all her hopes of the life of the Marquis were lost. She perceived that his death had been resolved upon and that nothing was to be expected either from the justice or the compassion of the men who were now at the head of affairs and who were carrying things with such a high hand. Hastening to the prison, she communicated to him the unsuccessful result of her visit to the palace. But painful as was this death blow to her hopes of his life, it was in some degree consoling to her that he was prepared for the fate awaiting him. She found him not agitated with fear, nor sinking beneath the abject influence of conscious guilt, but, though surrounded by prison walls and soon to undergo an ignominious execution, yet enjoying that serenity and joy of mind which conscious innocence and the peace of God never failed to impart. And this was the more remarkable from his being naturally of a timorous disposition. She continued with him, it would appear, till Sabbath night, when, at his own desire, she took a last farewell. Footnote. 
Wadrill's History, Volume 1, page 153. End footnote. In this season of deep distress, the Marchioness, like the genuine child of God, betook herself to the throne of grace. And it is an interesting trait in her character to find her there imploring from him who is a present help in the time of trouble, support and comfort, not so much for herself as for her beloved husband, who, though guilty of no crime, was so soon to suffer a traitor's death. On the forenoon of the day on which he was to be executed, she and Mr. John Carstairs were employed in wrestling with God in his behalf, in a chamber in the canon's gate, earnestly pleading that the Lord would now seal his charter by saying to him, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins are forgiven thee. It is a striking circumstance that at the very time of their being thus employed, the Marquis, while engaged in settling some worldly affairs, a number of persons of quality being present with him, was visited in his soul with such a sense of the divine favor as almost overpowered him, and after, in vain attempting to conceal his emotions by going to the fire and beginning to stir it with the tongs, he turned about and melting into tears exclaimed, I see this will not do. I must now declare what the Lord has done for my soul. He has just now, at this very instant of time, sealed my charter in these words. Son, be of good cheer. Thy sins are forgiven thee. This comfortable state of mind he retained to the last, and to this scene he alluded in his dying speech on the scaffold. Can it be doubted that the bestowment of the very blessing prayed for by this devout lady and that godly minister to the dying martyr at the very instant in which it was sought, was a signal answer to their believing prayers. Footnote, Wadros Analecta, Volume 2, page 148. End footnote. Surviving friends have naturally a concern that due honor be paid to the dead in the form of a decent and respectable funeral. And after the execution of this noble martyr, the Marchioness was anxious that due homage should be paid to his mortal remains. After he was beheaded, his headless corpse was delivered to those friends, noblemen, and others who, at his desire, were permitted to accompany him to the scaffold and be present with him on it. And they carried it into the Magdalene Chapel where it was prepared for interment. From the chapel it was attended by a numerous company of friends in funeral procession to Kilpatrick, thence transported by water to Dunoon, and finally deposited in its last resting place in the family burying vault at Kilman. Footnote. Sir George Mackenzie's Memoirs of the Affairs of Scotland, page 47. Aikman's History of Scotland, volume 4, page 187. End footnote. But it was distressing to the Marchioness to think that the head of the Marquis was exposed as a public spectacle and she was extremely desirous that it should be removed and interred with the rest of the body. With this view, her daughter, Lady Mary, Countess of Caithness, went to Middleton to supplicate that this favor might be granted to her mother and the family. But he received her in a different manner from that in which he had received her mother. When she was on her knees before him, begging with all the tenderness of filial piety her dead father's head to be buried, he brutally threatened to kick her with his foot if she did not rise and depart from his presence. Footnote Kirkton's History, page 156. End footnote. What a picture of a man, if we may call him a man, who could thus treat with cruel and wanton insult 
a lady in circumstances which one might think would have excited compassion in the breast of a monster. Argyle's head continued fixed on the west end of the toll booth till 1664 when a letter came from the king to the privy council commanding them to take it down that it might be buried with his body. It was accordingly taken down quietly in the night time. Footnote Rose Life of Robert Blair, page 169 End, end footnote under this heavy trial, the Marchioness was very generally and sincerely sympathized with throughout the country. Footnote. All did compassionate his religious lady and children. Rose Life of Robert Blair, page 385. End footnote. And her case was well calculated to excite sympathy. What must she have suffered in her mind from the time that the Marquis was thrown into the Tower of London to the time when he was beheaded as a traitor at the Cross of Edinburgh. Can it be doubted that she was made to taste, drop by drop, more than the bitterness of death, in the protracted agony which these proceedings inflicted on her soul? The tragic scene of, the, of his execution could not fail often to present itself to her imagination, piercing the heart with the bitterest anguish. And when she turned from that scene to reflect on her own condition, she must have found herself a widow indeed. But severe though the trial was, she rebelled not against the supreme disposer of events, but acquiesced in his determinations from a persuasion that though these, in some respects, might be mysterious and incomprehensible to her, they were yet the determinations of her heavenly Father, who doeth all things well. The exemplary resignation she displayed, and which everybody admired, is fully attested by contemporary writers. Law, for example, in his memorials when recording the death of the Marquis, says, His lady, Margaret Douglas, a lady of singular piety and virtue, bore this sad stroke with other, both personal and domestic afflictions, with great patience and incredible fortitude, giving herself always to prayer and fasting and ministering to the necessity of the saints. Footnote, Law's Memorials, page 10. End footnote. Various circumstances connected with the death of the Marquis would, no doubt, contribute to produce this desirable state of mind. It was comforting to her to reflect that no evil deed of his had merited such cruel treatment, that he died not as a traitor to his country or his king, but in reality as a martyr in the cause of Christ. It was comforting to her also to know that he met death with a heroism which has never been surpassed in the annals of martyrdom, a heroism not inspired by a passion for earthly renown like that of the patriots of Sparta, Rome, and Athens, but by the peace of God which dwelt in his soul and the hope of eternal glory with which he was animated. Footnote. Sir George Mackenzie, one of his counsel, having told him a little before his death that it was believed he was a coward and would die timorously, he replied that he would not die as a Roman braving death but he would die as a Christian without being affrighted. In proof of his mental tranquility on the scaffold, it may be stated that he addressed the spectators without the least apparent agitation, using his ordinary gestures, and that his physician, who touched his pulse, found it beating at the usual rate, calm and strong. Sir George Mackenzie's Memoirs of the Affairs of Scotland, page 47, Burnett's Own Times, volume 1, page 179. End footnote. 
Her pious friends, both ministers and others, would also contribute much by presenting to her mind the various sources of consolation opened up in the gospel to allay the bitterness of her grief and to produce submission to the divine will. Among those who were thus useful to her, we must not omit to mention Mr. John Carstairs, a man of strong sympathies to whom it was always a pleasant duty to condole with and comfort the suffering, the sorrowful, and the bereaved. Writing to her in reference to this dispensation, he says, He, God, hath given the highest security that all things, having a special look at all their inflictions, as the context in the confession of most, if not all, judicious commentators putteth beyond debate, shall work together for good to them that love God, and are, call, are the called according to his purpose, where he hath to speak so with reverence to his majesty, condescended some way to abridge his own sovereignty and absolute dominion, engaging himself by covenant that though he may do what he will, yet he shall will to do nothing but what shall be for his people's good, so that in all his dispensations toward them his absolute dominion and his good will shall be commensurable and of equal extent, the one of them never to be stretched one hair's breadth beyond the other. And even in the most dark, involved, intricate, abstruse, and mysterious providences wherein they can read and take up least of his mind, and wherein he, seeming to walk either in the greatest absoluteness of his dominion or in the sharpest severity of his justice, refuses to give a particular account of his matters and motions, he hath wonderfully stooped and condescended to give this general, sweetly satisfactory account that they shall work for good, even their spiritual good and profit, to the purging of sin and their further participation of his holiness. Footnote. Carstairs' dedication of Mr. James Durham's posthumous treatise on the Ten Commandments to the right honorable, truly noble, and renownedly religious lady, my Lady Marchioness of Argyle. In this dedication, Carstairs also says, Madam, being fully persuaded that this savory, sound, solid, soul-searching, and soul-settling treatise will be acceptable to and improved by your ladyship, for furtherance of this your spiritual good and advantage beyond what it will be to and by most others, I find no need of any long consultation with myself to whom to address its dedication, you having in my poor esteem on many accounts the deserved preference of many, to say no more, ladies of honor now living, and since withal I nothing doubt had the precious and now perfected author been alive, and minded the publication of it with a dedication to any noble lady, yourself would have been the person, of whom I know he had a high esteem, having himself before his death signified his purpose of dedicating his piece on the canticles to your lady's noble and much-noted sister-in-law, my lady Viscountess of Kenmure. It needs no epistles of commendication to you, who was so thoroughly acquainted with its author, the reading of it will abundantly commend itself, and as a piece, though posthumous, of his work, commend him in the gates. End footnote. The same writer further says to her, What possible loss or want is it that cannot be made up in him who is God all-sufficient, and in whom, 
whatever is desirable and excellent among the creatures is to be found in an eminently transcendent and infinitely more excellent way, and from whom, as the inexhaustibly full fountain and incomprehensibly vast, immense, storeless, boundless, and bottomless ocean of all delightful, desirable, imaginable, and possible perfections, the small drops and little rivulets of seeming and painted perfections, scattered among the creatures, issue forth. Footnote. Carstairs' dedication of Mr. James Durham's posthumous treatise on the Ten Commandments. End footnote. Not much longer than a year after the execution of the Marquis, she met with another trial in her eldest son, Lord Lorne, who, like his father, was tried before the Scottish Parliament and condemned to be beheaded, but the sentence was not executed. Footnote. See Appendix Number 3. End footnote. It may be proper here to say something concerning the worldly circumstances of the Marchioness on her becoming a widow. A little before going out to the place of execution, the Marquis wrote and subscribed a letter to the King in which he cast the desolate condition of his poor wife and family upon His Majesty's royal favor. For, says he, whatever may be Your Majesty's displeasure against myself, these I hope have not done anything to procure Your Majesty's indignation. And since that family have had the honor to be faithful subjects and serviceable to Your royal progenitors, I humbly beg my faults may not extinguish the lasting merit and memory of those who have given so many signal proofs of constant loyalty for many generations. Orphans and widows by special prerogative and command from God are put under your protection and defense that you suffer them not to be wronged. Footnote. Wadrow's History, Volume 1, page 154. End footnote. But notwithstanding this letter, there is reason to believe that had it been left entirely to Charles himself, who cared nothing about orphans and widows, the Marchioness and her fatherless children would have remained in poverty and dependent upon the bounty of others, while Middleton would have been reveling on the rental of their estates. Lauderdale, however, whose lady's niece, as has been observed before, was the wife of Lord Lorne, the eldest son of Argyle, succeeded in obtaining for the noble widow and her family their rightful property. A writer on that period, speaking of the condemnation, forfeiture, and execution of the Marquis, says, Nor could all the great power and interest which the Duke of Lauderdale had at court ward off this terrible blow, though he procured a gift of the forfeiture from His Majesty to the Earl of Argyle and his creditors to be applied in the following manner. First, Fifteen thousand pounds of free yearly rent was granted to the Earl himself. Second, allowance was made for payment of mortgages or proper wadsets. Third, for such debts as were owing by the Earl himself or for which he was bound jointly with his father. Fourth, for my lady Marchioness's provision by her marriage settlement and for the portions of the younger children of the family and the remainder of the estate was appointed to be equally divided among the late Marquis's children. Footnote. Memoirs of Sir Ewan Cameron of Lochile by Mr. John Drummond, page 167, 170, 195. End footnote. The Marchioness of Argyle was thus placed in such circumstances as rendered her independent and put it in her power to exercise liberality to others to a considerable extent. 
She survived the Marquis nearly 17 years, preserving during that period both the form and spirit of widowhood. Picking up her residence at Roseneath and living for the most part in retirement, she spent the remainder of her days in devotion and good works, conducting her family on the strictest principles of religion, attending the public and private means of grace with great regularity, ministering to the necessities of the the diseased, the poor, and the persecuted with affectionate liberality, bearing all the afflictions which befell her with exemplary patience and giving evidence by her whole deportment that she was under the influence of pure and undefiled religion. We are furnished with an account of the manner in which her widowhood was spent by Mr. Neil Gillies, indulged minister of the parish in which she resided. Footnote Mr. Neil Gillies had become indulged minister of Roseneath previous to the year 1679, he was afterward removed to Cardross upon a petition of the heritors and inhabitants of that parish to the Privy Council. Wadrow's History, Volume 3, page 24 and 156. He continued in Cardross till 1690 when he was translated to the Inner High Church of Glasgow. In their reasons for his translation, the people of Glasgow urge his peculiar fitness on these grounds. Number one, the acceptableness of his ministerial gifts to the people here who have often heard him. Number two, his converse since he left the college these thirty years past has been not only with the best but also greatest and those in most public employments in both this kingdom and England and so he must be more fit for such a public place as this. Number three, His prudence, patience, meekness, and healing temper, which the animosities and difficulties of this place call so loud for. They add that upon the foresaid account, the late, faithful, now glorified Mr. Rogers, who knew both him and this place so well, did move vigorously for him while he lived. And on his deathbed, and very near his end, being consulted by the eldership about his successor, did seriously recommend him as the fittest he could think upon. Wadrow Manuscripts, Volume 28, Number 32 Mr. Gillies died in 1701. He was a very serious and impressive preacher, as may be gathered from the two following anecdotes which Wadrow has preserved. One time Mrs. Luke heard him, either preaching on these words, Goodwill to Men, or he cited them and enlarged on them in a holy rapture, and was running out upon the infinite love and condescension and goodwill to men, and repeated it once or twice, goodwill to men and goodwill to me. Oh, how sweet it is this. A woman, long under distress but serious, cried out, and to me also, and this was the beginning of her gracious outgate, her deliverance from despondency. Wadros Analecta, Volume 4, page 45. At another time, when he heard betwixt sermons on the Sabbath day that Mr. Robert Langlands, about a year previous, transported from the barony to Elgin of Moray, was dead. After singing, when he began prayer, he said to this purpose, Lord, what wilt thou do with us? It seems thou art resolved to flit from among us when thou art packing up some of thy best plenishing and the tears dropped down from his cheeks on Mr. Simon Kelly, a minister, then precentor, who relates this. It was in 1697 or 1698. Wadrow Van Volume 2, page 336. End footnote. 
In a letter to a friend after her death, the chief design of the letter is to give some account of the circumstances connected with her last illness, but it is preceded by the statement of a few facts relating to her life. After observing that his purpose was not to give any large account of the Lord's dealing with this lady, whom he designates the truly noble and worthy, now glorified Lady Marchioness of Argyle, in her last sickness, but only some brief hints, the writer goes on to say, Neither shall I stay to tell you before this what is so well known to all who knew or heard tell of her, how much the Lord had enabled her to bear many a heavy cross, through a long tract of time during her widowhood, besides what had passed the rest of her life, which seldom wanted some remarkable cross. Of her it might well be said that she had endured a sore, a tedious, and a constant fight of afflictions. Old ones continued and new ones frequently superadded. Yet was she enabled to bear through with that faith, patience, submission, and Christian magnanimity that were very visible, commendable, and exemplary, and, which I cannot forget, being a thing that I often admired, such diligence and assiduity in following the duties of praying, reading, hearing, praise, all the acts of worship, a constant waiting upon all ordinances and duties, public and private, and even upon the weekly catechizing at which she delighted to be present, and by which she confessed that she had ever profited much. All these she so attended that it was a rare thing to find her in an omission as to any of them. And as if a child under the inspection of a teacher, or one put to task, and indeed she did task herself, so did she follow and keep close to these duties, being conscious that she had one who stood over her head always, that was witness to all her ways, to whom she must ere long give an account of herself." The rest of her time she did spend in overseeing her children or grandchildren, of which there were still a number about her, and Christian entertainment of such as came to visit her, with such exemplary gravity and sobriety, and other good entertainment as was much observed and commended. And moreover, her cheerfully welcoming and helping such as came for help or advice for their bodily diseases. For this she was so famous that they came frequently and in great numbers, of such she never wearied, nor was dissatisfied with their coming, except in so far as they did disappoint themselves, as she in her, her humility deniedly expressed it, by putting such confidence in her skill, which she said was no skill. Yet the experience that so many had of the Lord's blessing with good success, the advices and help she gave, brought so many to her who seldom missed of the intent of their coming, and divers of them would have within some time returned to show what the Lord had done to them by her means, and to give her thanks for which she was very thankful to him who had so blessed what she did. And that she might be the more useful this way, she had always good store of medicaments beside her, many of them brought from the apothecaries, but most of them she caused make herself never adventuring to give anything but what she knew was safe and could do no hurt. Neither was she behind any in the generation for charity to the poor distressed, especially to such as were of the household of faith. Great numbers of poor people did flock to her, nor could the coldest weather and most dangerous storms hinder them to come to her from afar, although they knew they were to pass over ferries, the place of her residence being surrounded with waters 
and it was the observation of neighbors about her that being there brought multitudes on them. But to these she was so liberal, as I need only say that I am persuaded she gave with as much Christian compassion as any, drawing out the soul to the hungry, etc., and that the receivers themselves were oft times astonished when they got so largely as that in many miles they got not so much from all as from her alone. And it was the admiration of many how this could hold out with her. But God blessed all. And when sometimes it was told her that many of those she gave to were but cheats and rogues, as indeed many of them were, she would freely answer, While we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, but especially to the household of faith. And that that she gave and that she gave what she gave to them, not as to cheats, but as to needy persons. And that if she gave with a single eye, she would be accepted, whatever they were and whatever use they made of what she gave. Footnote. It is obvious that this does not mean that she intended by her liberality to encourage the idle, who, if willing, might have supported themselves, or to furnish the vicious with the means of dissipation but simply that when she saw men in misery she felt herself bound to relieve them although she could not in every case prevent them from making a bad use of what she gave. Liberality ought, no doubt, to be exercised with discretion as well as with kindness, an important principle to be observed in this department of well-doing, for to give without reflection or capriciously may do more harm than good, may make the idle still more indolent and the vicious still more depraved, and may thus increase wretchedness in the attempt to relieve it. But still, even the profligate and abandoned when in misery must not be left to perish. Yet did she little regard profane randy beggars, though even these still got something by her order, and when she met with any whom she had ground to believe were of the household of faith, to these she was most liberal, and gave them with such compassion and kindness as did show what a living member of Christ's body she was. While she was daily exercised, for most part, as I have now hinted, she did not trouble herself with household affairs, except in causing provide things necessary for housekeeping, having laid over these matters entirely on some whom she trusted, of whose skill and fidelity she had long experience, and her being exonerated of this care and burden, she often acknowledged as a great ease to her and a great help to her being taken up with things of another nature, which was her main work and delight. Footnote. Bodrill Manuscripts, Volume 27, Number 27. This document is in the handwriting of Mr. Gillies, as appears from comparing it with another paper which Wadrill marks as in the handwriting of that minister. End footnote. Such is the description given of the ornamental character of this lady by a contemporary who knew her well. Baptized into the spirit of Jesus Christ who went about doing good, she was not only attentive to the duties of personal piety, but unwearied in the performance of the great duties of charity and benevolence. When the ear heard her, then it blessed her, and when the eye saw her, it gave witness to her, because she delivered the poor that cried, and the fatherless, and him that had none to help him. The blessing of him that was ready to perish came upon her, and she caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. Imitating him who maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust, she made it her business to minister to the welfare of even the undeserving.
Such was the temper and conduct inspired by the religion which she professed, and such was the spirit of the religion which Charles and his government misrepresented as fanaticism, sedition, rebellion, and labored by the violence of persecution to crush and extinguish. It thus appeared how eminently instrumental all the afflictive events which had befallen this noble widow had been in, pro in promoting her spiritual improvement. Accompanied by the divine blessing, they were in her case productive of those happy fruits which left to themselves they will never naturally produce. Another minister, Mr. Carstairs, who was also personally acquainted with her, addressing her only four years previous to her death, bears testimony in like manner to the distinguished progress she had made in Christian excellence through the influence of adverse dispensations. In the document from which we have before quoted, footnote, Carstairs' epistle dedicatory prefixed to Durham's posthumous exposition of the Ten Commandments, end footnote, after observing that the King of Saints has imposed upon every cross that his people meet with, not excepting, to say so, vessels of the greatest burden of affliction that sail up and down the sands, as it were, of the troublesome sea of this world, the toll and custom of some spiritual good to be paid to them, and after giving expression to a wish that all the graciously sincere lovers of God and the effectually called according to his purpose might be persuaded and prevailed with, to set themselves down at the receipt of these customs from the many crosses and afflictions that come in their way, with a fixed resolution to suffer none of them to pass without paying the custom imposed by the king, Carstairs goes on to say, It is now, noble madam, a long time, not far from toward thirty years, whatever was before, since your ladyship was known by some to be helped through grace, seriously to sit down at the receipt of these customs from the crosses, from the cross and afflicting dispensations which then occurred to you whereby ye did observably improve better and increase your spiritual stock and state some way to the admiration of standers by and since that time for most part of it you have been in the holy providence of God tried with attractive tribulations each of them more trying than another and some of them that I think as once the blessed author of this treatise on occasion of a sad and surprising stroke, the removal of the desire of his eyes, his gracious and faithful wife after a while's silence, with much gravity and great composure of spirit, said, Who could persuade me to believe that this is good if God had not said it? If all the world had said and sworn it, they could very hardly, if at all, be, have persuaded you to believe that they were good. But since God that cannot lie has said it, there is no room left to debate or doubt of it. Let be to deny it. And if your ladyship, as I hope you have, hath been all this while gathering up the customs of spiritual good and gain upon these many various and great tribulations, wherewith the Lord, no doubt in a blessed design of singular good to you, hath thought fit to exercise you beyond, the most, beyond most persons living, at least of your noble station and extraction, oh, what a vast stock and treasure of rich and soul-enriching precious experiences of the good and profit of all these afflictions and tribulations must you needs have lying by you. He further says, I could from my own particular 
certain knowledge and observation long ago and of late, having had the honor and happiness to be often in your company and at some of the lowest ebbs of your outward prosperity, and from the knowledge of others more knowing and observing than I, say more of your rich incomes of gain and advance, of your improvements, of the countervailings of your damage, and of the upmakings of all your losses this way, than either my fear of incurring the construction of a flatterer with such as do not know you as I do will permit, or your Christian modesty, sobriety, and self-denial will admit. And to undertake to say all that might truly and without complimenting be said to this purpose would be thought by your ladyship as far below you to crave or expect as it would be above me suitably to perform. In private intercourse, the conversation of the Marchioness was both edifying and interesting. Her acquaintance with the sacred writings and with the subordinate standards of the Church of Scotland enabled her to speak intelligently on questions of theology, and she was able to give a pleasing account of events which had befallen her family as well as of those which had befallen the church and nation during the stirring period in which she lived. I must not, says Mr. Gillies, forget to tell her, tell, that her acquaintance with the scriptures and with our confession of faith, the book which next to the Bible she was most versed in, did sufficiently witness how well she was stored with the knowledge of divine mysteries. And although she was no great reader of polemic divinity, yet when any had of controversy fell to be spoken of in her presence, she would upon the sudden, from the Bible and confession, adduce such allegations and testimonies as were opposite to the things then spoken of, so that the most judicious were about the most judicious that were about her were often and much edified by her. She was also well able to give a good account of things that had passed during the late troubles and many remarkable passages of providence that fell out in these times toward the church and kingdom and toward her own family to the great satisfaction of those that conversed with her. It is to be regretted that neither she herself nor Mr. Gillies has chronicled these remarkable passages. The Marchioness lived to be a considerably advanced age. In her last illness she exhibited the same pious spirit which w- with which she was animated during her past life, and her latter end was peace. Only a few facts, however, relating to her deathbed scene and the protracted illness preceding it have been preserved, and these we shall give in the words of Mr. Killies by whom they have been recorded. Her disease, says he, of which she died, commenced in April 1677, and continued during the period of eleven months till her departure. Yet from April till November she kept her feet, always writing, always waiting on duties in private and public, as she was wont to do, bearing the burden of her disease so patiently that none but those that were nearest her and most intimate with her could almost know anything that ailed her. She, however, had death still in view, and her strength was still diminishing gradually till November, at which time there was the accession of a great cold to her former disease, which forced her to take her bed November 11th. After some days she got up again, having recovered from the effects of that cold, but her old disease still continued and increased, so that from that time forth she never went out of her chamber to the gallery where she used to appear in public. She therefore appointed the daily worship to be performed in her chamber, where also 
Epworth performed the Sabbath day's work and weekday's sermon, admitting there all that pleased to come as she had done in the gallery, never shutting her gates or doors upon any all these times, whatever might be the hazard. During this time she contracted a great cold in the left side of her head, which was caused by the leaving a window open to help the chimney that does not vent well when the wind is at east. This cold brought that side of her head to such a distemper as never left her and did not a little molest her, while her main sickness did still increase, yet without impairing her judgment, memory, or sense, which were fresh and entire almost unto the last and without pain or heart-sickness, which was a great wonder to herself, and oft acknowledged as God's great mercy to her in his loosing the pins of her tabernacle so gently, that she was yet able to attend and go about any ordinary duty. For all this while she waited on every duty, most part sitting up, and but seldom lying, on her couch in the chamber, going to bed and rising almost at the ordinary times as when in health, continuing to join in all acts of worship, and holding out in the Sabbath day's work without wearying, to the admiration of all who saw her weakness and to her own admiration, and although a heavy disease. Footnote, Wadrill, Manuscripts, Volume 27, Number 27. Here Mr. Gilly's account of her last sickness and death abruptly stops. We, however, gather a few facts respecting the subsequent stages of her trouble from a long poetical tribute to her memory of his composition, embodying the particulars contained in his prose account of her, the most of which we have extracted, and carrying the narrative down to the moment in which she expired. From this poem we learn that after this she was afflicted with severe and tedious bodily distress, which she bore with a patience and meekness that beautifully harmonized with the bright exemplification she had given of these graces under the multiplied afflictions of her life. We also learn from it that after this she suffered severe mental distress. Satan has often been permitted to disturb the peace of the most eminent of God's people on their deathbeds, and by setting their sins, as it were, in array before them, he has tempted them to yield to the despairing imagination that it is presumptuous for them to expect forgiveness and salvation from a God of infinite purity and justice. Such was the temptation with which this pious lady was assailed in the prospect of eternity. But looking away from everything about herself, and trusting to the righteousness of Christ as the only foundation of her hope of eternal life, she was at last relieved, and becoming victorious over temptation and fear, she said, Oh, my ease is great, great, great is my ease. After this she again endured severe and protracted inward bodily agony, These agonies, says Mr. Gillies, can hardly be set forth, but as they expressed her worth and how much her Savior had trusted to the grace which he had strongly planted in her noble heart. Bystanders were astonished to see one who had suffered so much during life, tried so severely by her Heavenly Father to the last. But the days of her mourning were now near an end. Her strength gradually sunk, and on the 13th of March, 1678, After a long experience of the trials and vicissitudes of human life, she breathed out her spirit into the hands of her God and Savior with the greatest peace and tranquility in the 68th year of her age, bearing testimony with her dying breath to the goodness of the Lord. Footnote, Wadrow Manuscripts, Volume 27, Folio Number 80. 
End of footnote. The Wadro manuscripts, besides Mr. Gilley's poem from which these particulars are drawn, contain another by a different hand, but it is too long to be here inserted, nor has it any claim to poetical merit. It commemorates her as distinguished by a strong heart, a sound judgment, an active liberal hand, and a mind most noble. It celebrates the attractions of her persons, as well as her parts, virtues, graces, and her rare exemplary character as a friend, sister, consort, and mother, and pronounces her a public blessing, a universal good. The following lines may be quoted as a specimen. And let us never lose the memory of that rich pattern thou wast seen to be. To great and small, he who thy life should view, saw clear it did the Bible transcript show. And who thy steps will follow hard behind, the way to endless bliss is sure to find. You must acknowledge here a light, a shining star quite carried from our sight, never again to adorn our sphere, whose rays, while here it shone with us, made gladsome days. Glad were our hearts, how many warmed by thee, esteemed thy presence a felicity. But thou wilt yet once more return again, as one of the Redeemer's glorious train. Footnote. Wadrow Manuscripts, Volume 27, Folio, Number 80. These notices of the Marchioness of Argyle's character we cannot conclude more appropriately than in the words of Mr. Gillies, who has summed it up in a sentence or two. Her life, says he, is well known to have been filled with godliness, righteousness, sobriety, charity, and all Christian virtues, with a constant adherence to the truths and ways of God, without any fall or stain upon any part of her life. Yea, which is admirable, she lived to the age of sixty-eight without ever being slurred through her whole life with any scandal or crime, which the most blameless saints are liable to, and have been sorely afflicted with. Yet did none of the worst of her enemies ever adventure to asperse her with any shameful thing, nor did they ever tax her with anything but her principles and avowed profession and practice, her constant open adherence to which was her glory. How few the number of those over whose grave such a high econium can with truth be pronounced. How few through their whole life from youth to advanced age have so conspicuously displayed the Christian virtues and kept themselves so unspotted from the defilements of the world as that their greatest enemies could find nothing against them except in the matter of their God. Besides her eldest daughter, Lady Anne, and her eldest son, Archibald, ninth Earl of Argyll, formerly noticed, the Marchioness had issued to the Marquis, first Lord Neil Campbell of Armady, who, on his brother's invasion, was committed prisoner to the castle of Edinburgh. Second, Lady Jean, who was married to Robert Kerr, first Marquis of Lothian, to whom she had ten children. Third, Lady Mary, who was married first at Roseneath on the 22nd of September, 1657, to George, 6th Earl of Caithness, by whom she had no issue, and who, after his death, was married on the 7th of April, 1678, to Sir John Campbell, 1st Earl of Bredalbane, to whom she had one son. These are all her children by the Marquis, enumerated in Douglas's Peerage. Footnote. Douglas's Peerage, Volume 1, page 100. 
End footnote. But besides these, she had to him a daughter named Lady Isabella, who resided with her sister, the Count, Countess of Caithness, and who is sometimes mentioned in the epistolary correspondence of that lady. Footnote, Law's Memorials, Note by the Editor, page 10. Mrs. James Guthrie, Mrs. James Durham, and Mrs. John Carstairs. We shall here cluster together some notices of three excellent women, ministers' wives, who lived during the persecution. Jane Ramsay, the widow of Mr. James Guthrie, who suffered martyrdom in 1661. Margaret Muir, the widow of Mr. James Durham, one of the ministers of the High Church, Glasgow. And Janet Muir, wife of Mr. John Carstairs, also minister of the High Church, Glasgow. Many facts or incidents of their lives had not been spared by the moldering hand of time, but even the few which remain are not without interest, particularly when we consider the relation in which these ladies stood to three of the most eminent men who adorned the Church of Scotland during the 17th century, by the luster of their talents, the fervor of their piety, and their unswerving faithfulness to the cause of God. These women were in every respect suitable companions for the eminent men to whom they were united. Distinguished for enlightened and ardent piety, they proved mainsprings of encouragement and strength to them in the work of the Lord, by their conversation, their demeanor and counsel. And having taken up the cross, instead of tempting them to unfaithfulness to conscience when trials and difficulties in doing the will of God arose, they encouraged them to steadfastness and resolution, exhibiting that humility, patience, and self-sacrifice which constitute the genuine spirit of the cross. All of them suffered more or less in the cause of presbytery, and they thanked God that unto them it was given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Mrs. James Guthrie was more severely tried than the other two. She was the second lady whom the prelatic persecution made a widow, the Marchioness of Argyll being the first. Mr. Guthrie was condemned by the Parliament to be hanged at the Cross of Edinburgh as a traitor on the 1st of June, 1661, and his head thereafter to be struck off and affixed to the nether bow, which sentence was executed in all its parts. The grounds on which he was condemned were his owning the Western Remonstrance, the causes of God's wrath, etc. But Middleton, who had the chief hand in urging on the proceedings, was actuated by personal malice towards Guthrie, who in 1650 had carried in the commission of the church a motion for his excommunication, and who by appointment of the commission had publicly pronounced the sentence in his own church at Stirling. On that occasion, Mrs. Guthrie exhibited what was the prevalent governing principle of her life, that strict conscientiousness which, laying consequences out of view, looks only to the call of duty. When on the morning of the Sabbath on which Mr. Guthrie was to pronounce the sentence against Middleton, a messenger from the king, or, according to some, from a nobleman, arrived at his house just as he was about to go to church, Desiring him to delay pronouncing it, she said to him, on observing him perplexed, My heart, what the Lord gives you light and clearness to do, that do without giving a positive answer to the messenger. The high Christian character of this lady is attested in the farewell letter which Mr. Guthrie addressed to her from his prison on the day on which he was executed. This letter is interesting both as a relic of a dying martyr 
and as a memorial of the lowly piety and supreme devotion to duty which characterize the person to whom it is affectionately written. It also indicates the sources of comfort suggested to her mind in her trying circumstances. It is as follows. My heart, being within a few hours to lay down my life for the testimony of Jesus Christ, I do send these few lines as the last obedience of unfeigned and spotless affection which I bear unto you, not only as one flesh but as a member with me of that blessed mystical body of the Lord. For I trust you are, and that God who hath begun his good work in you will also perfect it and bring it to an end and give you life and salvation. Whatever may be your infirmities and weakness, yet the grace of God shall be sufficient for you, and his strength shall be perfected in your weakness. To me you have been a very kind and faithful yoke fellow, and not a hinderer but a helper in the work of the Lord. I do bear you this testimony as all the recompense I can now leave you with. In all the trials I have met with in the work of the ministry these twenty years past, which have not been few, and that from aggressors of any sorts, upon the right hand and upon the left, you were never a tempter of me to depart away from the living God, and from the way of my duty to comply with an evil course, or to hearken to the counsels of flesh and blood, for avoiding the cross, and for gaining the profit and preferment of a present world. You have wrought much with your hands for furnishing bread to me and to my children, and was always willing that I should show hospitality, especially to those that bore the image of God. These things I mention not to puff you up, but to encourage you under your present affliction and distress, being persuaded that God will have regard unto you and unto the children of my body, which I leave unto your care, that they may be bred up in the knowledge of the Lord. Let not your wants and weaknesses discourage you. There is power, riches, and abundance with God, both as to the things of the body and the things of the soul, and he will supply all your wants and carry you through. It is like to be a most trying time, but cleave you to God and keep his way without casting away your confidence. Fear not to be drowned in the depths of the troubles that may attend this land. God will hide you under his shadow and keep you in the hollow of his hand. Be sober and of a meek spirit. Strive not with providence, but be subject to him who is father of spirits. Decline not the cross, but embrace it as your own. Love all that love the Lord, and delight in their fellowship. Give yourself unto prayer, and be diligent in reading the Holy Scriptures. Wait on the ordinances, and have them in great esteem as the appointed means of God for your salvation. Join the exercise of piety and repentance together, and manifest your faith in the fruits of sincere obedience and of a gospel conversation. Value your conscience above your skin. Be not solicitous, although you know not wherewith to clothe you and your children, or wherewith to dine. God's providences and promises are a true, rich, and never-failing portion. Jesus Christ be all your salvation and all your desire. You I recommend unto him, and him unto you. My heart, I recommend you to the eternal love of Jesus Christ. I am helped of God, and hope I shall be helped to the end. Pray for me while I am here, and praise with me hereafter. God be with you. I am yours. James Guthrie, Edinburgh Tollbooth, June 1st, 1661.
This letter was calculated to arm Mrs. Guthrie's mind with fortitude and submission under the cruel and ignominious death of her husband. Other considerations would conspire in bringing into exercise the same Christian graces. Though condemned as a traitor, he had committed nothing worthy of death but fell a martyr for keeping the commandment of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. He encountered death with an unshrinking courage which ranks with that of the most heroic of prophets and apostles. It was an alleviating circumstance, too, to reflect that his self-devotion in the cause of Christ procured for him, as it deserved, the affection, honor, and admiration of the wise and good who regarded his death as a judicial murder. Nor were the religious ladies of that time wanting in paying to him the tribute of their respectful and admiring homage. Footnote. In proof of this, the following instance may be given. After Guthrie had been executed, his headless corpse was put into a coffin and carried to the old Kirk Isle to be prepared for interment by several devout ladies of quality who had tendered their friendly services. The dressing of the dead is always solemn, but the performance of this duty to the mortal remains of an honored martyr who has sealed the truths of God with his blood is associated with feelings of profound veneration. It was so on the present occasion. Some of the ladies who were so engaged dipped their napkins in the blood that flowed from Guthrie's mangled body. Sir Archibald Primrose, Lord Register, observing what they did, asked them their reason for so doing and charged them with with imitating the superstition of the Papists who collect and worship the relics of the saints. No, said one of them, We are not actuated by superstitious motives. We do not intend to worship the martyr's blood, but when we go to the throne of grace, we will hold up that blood to God, that it may cry for vengeance on those who have most cruelly shed it. During the the performance of their solemn offices, a respectable young gentleman, unknown at the time to any of them, but afterward discovered to be Mr. George Sterling, who became an eminent surgeon in Edinburgh came in with a vial of fragrant ointment and without uttering a word poured upon the corpse the ointment which diffused through the whole building a most delightful odor. God bless you sir exclaimed one of the ladies for this labor of love which you have shown to the slain body of a servant of Jesus Christ. Bowing respectfully to the ladies he silently retired. Janet Bruce says Wadrow who was Dr. Sir Thomas Burnett's lady, if I have not forgotten, was one of these gentlewomen that put their napkins in Mr. Guthrie's blood. Wadrow's Analecta, Volume 3, page 103. McCree's Sketches of Scottish Church History, 2nd edition, page 396. End of footnote. Though these considerations were fitted to mitigate her sorrow, yet the tragedy of his death in all its appalling circumstances would tend at first to overpower the mind and to exclude from it reflection on such alleviating topics. Mrs. Guthrie and her children were left in poor circumstances, but God, who in his providence exercises a special care over the fatherless children and widows of his martyred servants, raised up for them kind friends. Among others, Sir George Maxwell of Pollock took a particular interest in their temporal welfare. The following anecdote is highly honorable to the liberality of that benevolent gentleman. 
and interesting as illustrating the unexpected and remarkable way in which God has sometimes supplied the wants of the widows and orphans of his departed saints in their distress. I am assured, says Wadrow, by a good hand that had it from Mr. George Lang, who was employed, that Sir George Maxwell of Pollock, a little after Mr. Guthrie's execution, hearing his relict was in want, called for Mr. George Lang, his chaplain, and told him that he was mighty uneasy since he had heard Mrs. Guthrie was in straits, and he had little money by him but took out a purse of gold, most of it old Scots coins, of which he was very curious, and told him he would rather have sent if he had had it by him twice the value of it in ordinary money, but he could not and would not delay, and gave it to him and sent him into Edinburgh, express with it and a letter to Mrs. Guthrie. It was to the value of five hundred or six hundred merks. Mr. Lang went in by Glasgow and borrowed five or six hundred merks and left the gold in pledge, carried in and delivered the money to Mrs. Guthrie. Footnote. Wadrow's Unelecta, Volume 1, page 305. Mr. Lang had no authority to pledge the gold coins, but knowing the value which Sir George Maxwell set upon them, he did so that they might be recovered when Sir George got a supply of money. End footnote. In the beginning of the year 1666, Mrs. Guthrie was put to trouble on account of a book entitled An Apologetical Relation of the particular sufferings of the faithful ministers and professors of the Church of Scotland since August 1660, which was written by Mr. John Brown, Minister of Lomfrey, at the Restoration, and who, on being banished His Majesty's dominions for faithfully adhering to his principles, took refuge in Holland. This able work was printed in Holland in 1665, and a number of copies were sent over to this country. The government being informed of the character of the book and of its being circulated in various parts of the kingdom, and having upon perusing it themselves found it, to use their own language, to be full of seditious, treasonable, and rebellious principles contrived of purpose to traduce the king's authority and government, the proceedings of the late parliament, and the king's privy council, they resolved to put it down. As it vindicates at length the Marquis of Argyll and Mr. James Guthrie, the first victims who, after the Restoration, were immolated at the shrine of the Moloch of personal revenge and arbitrary power, and exposes the illegality, injustice, and cruelty of the proceedings of the government against them, it was natural that Mrs. Guthrie should procure a copy of the book. The copy she had got being found in her house, probably when it was searched for some of the Covenanters, such persons from her relation to Mr. Guthrie and from her known character being suspected of resorting to or taking shelter under her roof, she and her daughter, Sophia Guthrie, were brought before the Privy Council on the 8th of February, 1666. On appearing before them, they were required to declare upon oath what they knew as to the author of the book and to discover from whom they had received it. This they refused to do, upon which the council sentenced them both to be sent to Shetland, there to be confined during the council's pleasure, and to be kept close prisoners till they should be transported to the place of their banishment. These proceedings were not only harsh, but illegal. No law had as yet been published against the apologetical relation. It was only on the day on which this sentence was passed upon Mrs. Guthrie and her daughter that the council emitted their proclamation against it, 
ordaining that upon the 14th of February instant it should be publicly burned on the high street of Edinburgh near near to the market cross by the hand of the hangman, and that all possessing it, resident on the south of the Tay, should deliver the same to the sheriffs of the respective shires or their deputies, to be by them transmitted to the clerk of the Privy Council not later than the last day of February instant, and those on the north of the Tay not later than the 21st of March next, under the penalty of £2,000 Scots money. It is obvious, then, that as at the time when the apologetical relation was discovered in Mrs. Guthrie's house, there was no law in existence forbidding any to have it, its being found in her possession was no crime against any existing statute, and that consequently the sentence pronounced against her and her daughter was arbitrary and illegal. Where no law is, there is no transgression. They lay in prison till the next meeting of the council, which was on the 2nd of March. To that meeting they presented a petition, praying that their confinement might be altered to some place upon the continent probably intending, should they be allowed, to remove to Holland, which, from the number of their expatriated countrymen resident there, as well as from the character of the country itself, though it is not one of the best climates, they would have felt a more eligible place of banishment than so remote, solitary, cold, and unhealthy a part of the world as Shetland. The council referred their petition to His Majesty's Commissioner with power to do in the matter as he should find cause. Footnote, Wadrow's History, Volume 2, page 7. End footnote. What punishment the Commissioner inflicted upon them, we are not directly informed. Mrs. Guthrie, however, was banished for some years from Edinburgh. This appears from a petition which she presented to the Privy Council about the beginning of January 1669, showing that her only son was in Edinburgh under a sad distemper to the hazard of his life, and therefore supplicating that notwithstanding her confinement she might be licensed for some time to come to Edinburgh and wait upon her son. The council at their meeting of the 15th of January, upon consideration of this petition, and of a testimonial subscribed by Dr. Burnett, which was at the time same time presented, allow the petitioner to come to Edinburgh and to reside therein until the 15th day of February next to the effect above mentioned. Footnote. Register of Acts of Privy Council. End footnote. Here we lose sight of Mrs. Guthrie in the history of the persecution, nor have we discovered how long she lived subsequently to this period. We shall therefore close this sketch with a brief notice of her only son referred to above, whose name was William. At the time of his father's death, he was a child not more than four or five years old. Yearning over him with all the affection of a parent's heart, Guthrie, in a last interview, took him upon his knee and gave him such religious advices as were suited to his infant mind. Willie, said he, among other things, Though your comrade should tell you and cast it up to you that your father was hanged, think not shame of it, for it is upon a good cause. But William was so young as not to be aware of the tragic fate of his father, and as scarcely to be restrained from playing in the streets on the very day of his father's execution. When, however, he grew up to boyhood, he became thoughtful and serious. While other boys were enjoying their youthful sports, William was to be seen at the Netherbow port where the head of his dear father was fixed on a spike, a monument of the martyr's heroism and of the government's injustice, 
and there looking up with riveted gaze to the manly countenance, the tragedy of his father's execution was presented to his imagination as if in all its living reality. Often would he return to the spot and gaze upon the spectacle as if he could never become weary of gazing upon it. And on returning home to his mother, when she inquired where he had been, his usual reply was, I have been seeing my father's head. He remembered or was told his father's last advices to him. He read his father's last speech from the scaffold, a copy of which the martyr subscribed and sealed and gave to his friends to be kept for his son until he became older. And the mantle of his father seemed to have fallen upon him. As he grew up, his habits of seriousness increased. He was much employed in meditation, study, and prayer. Footnote. Wadrildana Lecta, Volume 3, Page 103, Life of Guthrie, in Free Church, Publications, Page 122, 172 to 175. End Having devoted himself to the work of the ministry, he prosecuted the preparatory studies with success and gave indications of much future usefulness. But, being always of a delicate constitution, he was cut off when about to receive license as a preacher of the gospel. By his early death, his mother's hopes of seeing him useful in the church below were disappointed. It was not, however, the will of God that he should be employed in his service on earth, and she doubtless bowed with submission to the sovereign and wise determination of the supreme ruler of all things, finding in this a new influence to attract her to heaven and a new motive to quicken her diligence in making preparation for it. Mrs. James Durham, whose maiden name was Margaret Muir, was the fourth daughter of William Muir, Esquire of Glanderston, by his first wife, Jean Blair, daughter of a gentleman of that name in the West. Footnote. Besides Mrs. Durham and a daughter, Jean, who died in infancy, Mr. Muir of Glanderston had, by his first wife, other two daughters, Ursula, who was married to William Ralston of that ilk, and Jean, who was married to Mr. James Hamilton of Hallcraigs, a nephew of Lord Clainboy, and by his second wife, Jean Hamilton, sister to Lord Viscount Clainboy, he had Janet to be next noticed, who was married to Mr. John Carstairs, Elizabeth, who was married to Alexander Dunlop, Minister of Paisley, and Agnes, who was married to William Porterfield of Quarleton. All these ladies were eminent for their for piety in their day. For some notices of Mrs. Ralston, see Wadrill's Analecta, Volume 3, pages 18 and 20, and Mr. John Carstairs' letters, pages 159 to 161. In Rutherford's letters, White and Kennedy's edition, published 1848, there is a letter of Rutherford's to this lady, printed for the first time, page 716. Elizabeth, the wife of Mr. Dunlop, for being present at a house conventicle in Edinburgh in November 1676, was imprisoned by order of the Privy Council till she found caution under a thousand merks to remove from the town of Edinburgh and six miles around it. Wadrow's History, Volume 2, page 335. End footnote. She was born August 26, 1618 enjoying the inestimable blessing of religious parents who both set before her a good example and trained her up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, 
she became at an early period of life the subject of the saving work of the Holy Spirit. Educated, too, in the strictest principles of presbytery, of which her father was a warm supporter, she continued through life to maintain them in honor and dishonor, through evil report and good report. She was married first to the famous Mr. Zachary Boyd, minister of the Barony Church of Glasgow, and next to the still more celebrated Mr. James Durham as his second wife. But she became a widow a second time in 1658. Durham, having died on the 25th of June that year in the 36th year of his age, she survived him more than 30 years living during that long period in a state of widowhood. Sometime after his death, she appears to have changed the place of her residence to Edinburgh. At least she was residing there in 1666 and subsequently during the period of the persecution. Footnote. Mr. William Veach, in his memoirs, page 38, states that when sent on a perilous mission to Edinburgh by the Covenanters previous to the Battle of Pentland Hills, he intended to reside all night in the house of Mrs. Durham, which was in Bristol Street. End footnote. After Mr. Durham's death, she carefully preserved his manuscript lectures and sermons with a view to their being published for general usefulness, and many of them were actually published. Among these may be mentioned his exposition of the Song of Solomon, to which she has prefixed an epistle dedicatory signed and apparently written by herself to the Viscountess of Kenmure, and his treatise on the Ten Commandments. This latter work, from its very nature, would be regarded with jealousy by a persecuting government whose whole policy was in direct opposition to the law of God, and some difficulty was experienced when it was first printed in obtaining permission to its being circulated in Scotland, there being then no such thing as the freedom of press in our land. Having got it printed in London, Mrs. Durham presented a petition to the Lords of the Privy Council, praying them to allow it to be imported from England and sold in Scotland. The Council's answer to her petition is embodied in the following Act, Edinburgh, Edinburgh, 4th of November, 1675. The Lords of His Majesty's Privy Council, having considered a petition presented by Margaret Muir, relict of Mr. James Durham, late minister at Glasgow, to recommend to the Bishop of Edinburgh to revise a book written by the petitioner's husband entitled A Practical Exposition of the Ten Commandments, which is already printed at London, and to report his opinion there anent to the Council, that thereafter they may give such order in favor of the petitioner concerning the said book as they shall think fit, and in the meantime discharge and prohibit all printers, stationers, and others to reprint or import any copies of the said book under the pain of confiscation of the same, and such other penalties as the council shall think fit to inflict, and appoint intimation to be made hereof to the stationers, printers, and others to the effect foresaid. Footnote. Register of Acts of Privy Council. End footnote. As might have been expected, Mrs. Durham adhered to the faithful ministers who, for nonconformity, had been ejected from their charges to make way for the establishment of prelacy, and, maintaining the freedom of Christ's ambassadors to dispense the ordinances of the gospel not only without licenses from the civil magistrate, but even when the civil magistrate has peremptorily discharged them to preach, baptize, or perform any of the duties of the ministerial office, she had too much principle and spirit not to act upon these sentiments. 
She was accordingly not only a frequenter of conventicles, but an encourager of these interdicted meetings, so far as to allow them to be held in her own house. For a considerable time this was not known to the authorities of Edinburgh, for it was overlooked by the town major who was in the habit of accepting money as a bribe not to interfere with the private worshipping assemblies of the nonconformists in the city. When, however, the news of the tragical death of Archbishop Sharp, which took place May 3, 1679, had reached Edinburgh, the government became greatly alarmed and irritated, such as kept conventicles in their own houses or frequented them, were exposed in an increased degree to danger and hardship. On the 4th of May, the day after the archbishop's death, a meeting for sermon was held at night in Mrs. Durham's house. The number present was about 30, and the most of them were her near relations, their children, and servants. The preacher was Mr. William Hamilton, a young gentleman of eminent piety, and the brother of Mr. James Hamilton of Hallcraig, who was married to Mrs. Durham's fourth sister, Jean. When engaged in religious services, this peaceful meeting was furiously broken upon by the town major with a party of soldiers, who, seizing all present, committed them to prison. Mrs. Durham and her sister, Mrs. John Carstairs, who was one of the hearers, were with the rest imprisoned in the toll booth for some nine or ten days. When on their petitioning the Privy Council, an order was granted for their being set at liberty. The act of the Council is as follows. Edinburgh, 13th of May, 1679. The Lords of His Majesty's Privy Council, having considered a petition of Margaret Muir, relict of Mr. James Durham, and Janet Muir, spouse to Mr. John Carstairs, for, themse- for, their- for themselves and their children and servants, and diverse other persons, prisoners in the tollbooth of Edinburgh, for being present at a conventicle kept in the house of the said Mrs. Margaret Muir, upon the fourth instant, supplicating that in regard of their miserable and poor condition, the council would give order for their liberty. The said lords do declare the petitioners free of any restraint or imprisonment by their warrant, and remit to the magistrates of Edinburgh to take such course with them as they shall think fit. Footnote. Decrets of Privy Council. End footnote. Wadrill observes that it was with difficulty that some of their friends got the council to pass this act in their favor. For this conventicle, the magistrates of Edinburgh were fined by the Privy Council in the sum of fifty pounds sterling, according to the fifth act of the second session of the second parliament of Charles II by which act it is expressly provided and declared that magistrates of burghs are liable for every conventicle kept in their burghs to such fines as the Lords of Privy Council shall think fit to impose. Footnote. Decrees of Privy Council, May 15, 1679. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com 
We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.